This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We'll bring you Ryan Warner's conversation with Governor John Hickenlooper in just a moment. They recorded live this morning at the state capitol in the waning hours of the legislative session. But first, the fatal home explosion in Firestone last month raises questions about the state's existing oil and gas infrastructure, including underground pipelines. Oil and gas companies across the state now have their inspectors out in the field checking underground flow lines. That's a result of an order issued by Governor Hickenlooper that requires all companies to inspect their lines that are underground. CPR Energy reporter joined uh, Grace Hood joined Mike Lamp to explain. What does the governor's order mean? What will companies have to do? Oil and gas companies have until May 30th to inspect existing flow lines and pipelines. And that's within 1,000 feet of occupied buildings. So that means that they're going to be using most likely pressure tests to find any leaks. Companies are then going to have 60 days to ensure and document that all of those lines have integrity. So this really means that all the leaks that they find have to be fixed by June 30th. And the state has also added a data requirement for operators. So they're going to have to document for the state where the wells and the flow lines are with GPS coordinates. And, you know, at this point, it remains to be seen how much of that information is going to be made available to the public. Now, this whole incident, this explosion at Firestone has uh, introduced a word into kind of the the public conversation that, that I think a lot of people are unfamiliar with. What is a flow line? Great question. Flow lines are metal or plastic pipes, and they're found about three to seven feet below the surface. So typically they connect a well and a tank battery, which is a holding vessel, and they're bringing out of the well everything the well is producing. So typically this is oil, some gas, and some water. In Firestone, the flow line in question was one of two that used to connect a well to an old tank farm. Now, the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission says the well was disconnected from the holding tank and rerouted to a new tank between 1999 and 2002. And during that time, the two flow lines became inactive and the old tank farm was removed around 2014. In their investigation after the April explosion, Firestone investigators say they found one of the flow lines running from the well capped at the wellhead, while the second line was not capped. Now, how could homeowners tell if there are flow lines near their house? There's no public maps of Colorado's oil and gas flow lines. Now, Democratic Representative Mike Foote introduced a late legislative bill to change this, but it was filibustered earlier this week by Republicans. If homeowners are planning to dig underground, they can dial 811 or go to colorado811.org. And that nonprofit has a computer system that routes requests to proper companies, including utilities, oil and gas operators, and cable providers. And they have three days to process the request. And if there are lines that homeowners need to steer clear of, it's the company's responsibility to really mark those on the property where they are. This explosion in Firestone, people think that uh, they're protected from explosions of natural gas because you can smell it and it's very distinctive and you know that there's gas leaking somewhere. But in this case, it was coming up from the ground and it hadn't had that smell uh, added to it yet. And so, you know, the homeowners didn't even know that there's gas building up around them. 
Is there some way that natural gas can be detected if it doesn't have that scent added to it yet? Yes. What you're referring to is mercaptan. This is typically something utilities add before piping gas to homes. And there are consumer detectors that exist that can measure the amount of gas nearby, even if it doesn't smell. Some of them have probes or a plastic or rubber wire that extends from the device, so you can even put it into the soil to test if there's anything there. Well, that's reassuring. Uh, what kind of uh, changes could we expect to see in the coming months or years because of this explosion in Firestone? Short term, we're expecting to see more discussions on how to make information about flow lines more public. Right now, the state's collecting data from operators about where those lines are, and then they'll have to decide what to do with it. Longer term, I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about setbacks, setbacks between new wells and occupied buildings. But we may also see cities putting attention towards setbacks between old wells and new homes. There's no statewide setback distance in this situation. And many cities do have requirements, though, but we may start to see cities revisit those setback rules they put in place. Well, Grace, thanks a lot. Thank you. That was CPR energy reporter Grace Hood talking about flow lines and a home explosion in Firestone. She spoke with Mike Lamp. If you have questions about flow lines and oil and gas development, email us, energy at CPR.org. We'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. This morning, we were live with Governor John Hickenlooper at the state capitol. He joined my colleague Ryan Warner on the last day of the legislative session. One thing they talked about was a big compromise to secure hospital and road funding, which passed later in the morning. Governor, welcome to the program. I want to say that because of some technical issues, we're both on the phone, but I think it's the quality of the conversation that matters more than the quality of the connection. And thanks for being with us. No, of course. And I agree completely. The quality of the, of the conversation is what matters. Uh, we're going to hit several topics today, including what effect that deadly house explosion in Weld County might have on oil and gas regulation. But first, When this legislative session began 120 days ago, you talked repeatedly in your State of the State address about finding a new source of money for transportation to deal with what you say is a $9 billion wish list of state projects. And you told the legislature, if talk could fill potholes, we'd have the best roads in the country. (laughs) For Coloradans stuck in traffic jams who are swearing about their commute or who are driving trucks on bumpy rural roads... How did this session work out for transportation? Well, you know, I think uh, if you look at the stuff we talked about back then in the, at the State of the State speech, for instance, we did talk a lot about roads and bridges, but we also talked about the hospital provider fee, affordable housing, gray market enforcement, uh, you know, healthcare reform. I think transportation, we made a big step by getting the hospital provider fee finally done, which, again, I give tremendous credit to. Uh, President Grantham and Speaker uh, Duran, uh, they both had to make compromises that neither were comfortable for. But in creating the hospital provider fee, they did uh, get at least a start, right? Uh, In other words, of the money that's going to be dedicated to transportation in the hospital provider fee, about, I think, 25% goes to rural uh, roads, 10% goes to uh, transit. Uh, So there's about you know, of, the, of that money, maybe a little over a billion dollars, $1.1 billion uh, will go to uh, other transportation projects. That's out of $9 billion that we really needed. So we made a good step forward, but it certainly doesn't solve the problem. 
If there are listeners wondering how the heck a hospital provider fee relates to roads and bridges, uh, the hospital provider fee refers to a pretty contentious accounting change that frees up money in the budget. It appears, uh, though negotiations, I understand, are still underway, that this is headed for passage and for your desk. And so it's, it's a dent, you say, in the $9 billion transportation wish list. Uh, what did not pass this session was a proposed tax increase specifically for transportation that would have been referred to the ballot so that voters could have decided, and it would have raised $3.5 billion for transportation. Uh, Why do you think lawmakers found room for agreement on the hospital provider fee but couldn't crack the nut of that not even tax increase but proposed tax increase to go before voters? Well, it was disappointing and, and puzzling. I agree with you. The, uh, and I think part of the reason the hospital provider fee got through was things other than transportation. Transportation became part of the deal to convince people, uh, especially Republicans, that were really had problems uh, with the hospital provider, provider fee being reclassified as a fee, which we've always argued it was. Uh, a lot of them felt by putting some transportation that you know this money that would be freed up making sure that a, a, a significant chunk went to transportation, that helped them get there. In terms of the tax increase, I really am. I mean, we were asking permission from the legislature to put this on the ballot, to let the people decide. Isn't that what Tabor kind of is implied in Tabor, that we would from time to time bring issues bef- before the voters? Uh, and when that got killed, and again, I give uh, Kevin Grantham a lot of credit because you know, he he led in a very politically difficult uh, issue for Republicans. He was willing to stand up there and say, no, no, this is something that voters should get a chance to decide. And I give him a lot of credit for sticking in there. So the compromise bill that uh, appears headed for passage, as you've said, does much more than just address transportation. In fact, our reporter at the Capitol, Vic Vela, has called it the kitchen sink bill. There is money in this to keep rural hospitals and safety net hospitals open. Uh, it may increase some co-pays for Medicaid patients. There are small business tax breaks. We'll get to some of those others, but one more question about its funding for transportation, just under $2 billion. Um, is there a list of, of what projects come first? In other words, can you tell the people of Colorado right now what the priorities are in terms of specific projects out of that money? You know, that all goes through a nonpartisan, uh, what we call the Transportation Commission, with representatives from all across the state. And I haven't, I'm not sure if they've redone that list or sat down looking at, you know, with a different amount of money, is that going to change their priorities in any way? But I'm, I'm sure that they will get on that in the very near future. I'm sure they're working on it right now. All right. And again, the bill, the bill hasn't passed yet, so they've got to wait and make sure, you know, that as the bill comes out, and then they're going to, you know, begin the analysis. Yes, it has to pass, of course, by the end of today, this being the last day of the legislative session. Okay, to some of the other items in this kitchen sink bill, uh, and that is keeping open rural hospitals and safety net hospitals. Uh, do you believe this is a long-term fix, or is this a band-aid on deeper issues that are affecting especially rural communities and the health care provided for them? Well, I think the money going to uh, rural hospitals uh, is, a, is a long-term fix for many of them. I think it was important to get done uh, 
the state. I mean, no way should we ever consider turning our back on the parts of the state that provide our food. Uh, you know, our agricultural economy is a big part of this overall state's economy. Uh, but I, I do want to point out that this wasn't all that we should be doing for uh, rural health care. And it is a big step forward. But unfortunately, uh, one of the bills that got killed was what we call the local government opt-in, which would allow the smaller towns to become part of the state pool in terms of, of how insurers would, you know, which insurers would provide insurance and what rates would be provided. Obviously, when you have a bigger pool, your premiums go down. And so towns like Brush, Colorado, could have been part of this much larger pool and would have seen their 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 insurance premiums gone down for sure. And that uh, obviously uh, didn't happen. There was also another bill that offered what, what was called premium support. For, it would have affected 47 out of 64 counties. And it that sliver that wasn't covered by Obamacare, the people from four times to five times the federal poverty level, would have gotten a very modest uh, premium support so that, again, people in rural areas wouldn't be paying dramatically higher uh, insurance premiums than the people in the rest of the state. To put a bow on this conversation about uh, this bill, which does many things as we've explored, so it touches transportation, touches health care, uh, there are some moving uh, to the ballot and um, hoping to ask voters themselves if there can be a tax increase for transportation and infrastructure. Uh, that is, uh, because the legislature did not refer a measure to the ballot, uh, they would gather signatures and put it on the ballot themselves. Uh, I think there are any number of efforts that would do this. Would you endorse um, those efforts to put a transportation tax on the ballot through other means? Um, I haven't seen uh, any of those measures or any of the language, so I, I don't know. I'd have to see what it looks like. Uh, you know, Is there I'm, a part of you that's crossing your fingers that one of them makes it? Uh, again, it would depend on what it is. But I, I do think, obviously, only having uh, what it turns out to be about $1.1 billion when we have $9 billion worth of needs is, is not satisfactory. And this state, I mean, right now, we have at, at 2.6 unemployment, we have the lowest unemployment in America, the strongest economy in America, and yet we're unwilling to invest our resources in making sure that, that our success doesn't strangle us in the future. And it, it's very frustrating. I think, I think the voters, if given that choice, uh, would certainly say, hey, I don't mind paying. I, I want it to be as, as small an increase as possible. I want to make sure it all goes towards transportation infrastructure. But I want to make sure that we have a, you know, a system that works. And uh, the fact that it's not going to the to the voters is, is, is very frustrating. If you liked what you saw from a measure on the ballot, um, it, it met your needs, whatever those are, would you campaign for it? Sure. I, I, I mean, if the, if the General Assembly had referred a measure to the ballot, I, uh, at least the versions I saw, uh, I, I, again, depends on how things would have come out when it finally gets passed, but I would have supported them. The most of the things I saw were modest, uh, limited tax increases that would have provided essential resources to make sure that we fix I-25, fix I-70. You know, the, 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 the traffic congestion that we get in 
you know, the urbanized areas of the state are, uh, I mean, it's gone on too long, and the state's got to be a partner in addressing those issues, especially in those places where, you know, you're connecting to urbanized area, but it's going through a rural part of the state that can't raise the money themselves. That's Governor John Hickenlooper speaking live this morning with my colleague Ryan Warner. After they spoke, the big compromise bill they talked about relating to the hospital provider fee passed and will give the state more money to spend on transportation projects. We have more of the conversation with Governor Hickenlooper after a break. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Let's rejoin our conversation recorded live this morning with Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper. He joined my colleague Ryan Warner at the state capitol on the final day of the legislative session. And because of some technical issues with the live broadcast, they were both on the phone. So please excuse the sound quality. So let's talk about another big issue, oil and gas regulation. Last month, an explosion at a home in Firestone in Weld County killed two people. Investigators say that was caused by a gas leak from a broken flow line that was connected to an old well. Uh, You gave oil and gas operators 30 days to inspect wells and flow lines within 1,000 feet of occupied buildings. Uh, They have 60 days to fix any leaks they find. But that's the companies inspecting themselves. Um, Is that enough to guarantee people's safety? Yes, I think so, because we're going to do spot checks all over the place. We have a... uh, almost 100 inspectors on the state payroll as well. So we're going to be redoubling our efforts to make sure that we are, you know, supervising and, uh, if you would, uh, auditing, uh, making sure that those that the, all the uh, flow lines get checked. Obviously, some of the flow lines are abandoned. The companies that put them in place no longer in business. Uh, I think that's where we're also going to put effort to say to work with local counties and municipalities to really make this a statewide effort to let's get all this stuff on on paper. Let's get a map of where each flow line is and then make sure that the local communities and neighborhoods uh, can have access to that information. It should be public. In my opinion, it should be public information. So when you say spot checks, that is to say you'll be checking up on the self-inspections that the industry is doing. But several oil and gas operators and contractors have told CPR News they think the timeline is far too short. Some have even said you're trying to cram a year's worth of work into a couple of months. So um, will those wells and lines be inspected and maintained within the 30 days or the 60 days you've ordered? And, And how can you make sure to enforce that if it's unworkable for some companies? Well, obviously, we made that decision in, you know, literally in 24 hours, uh, and we had no assessment of the uh, viability. No one has said that to us, or at least not to me. Maybe someone said it to the uh, Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. Uh, But we got, you know, we're not trying to demand something that's impossible, but what we wanted to do was create a sense of urgency. Uh, Again, I, I am still of the of the opinion that this was a freak occurrence, uh, that there's not any likelihood that there's a similar situation anywhere in the state. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't go out and, 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 and do everything we can as quickly as possible to, to you know, go through every, every flow line and make sure as we do that, that we make a, a paper record, a, we map where they are. You call this a freak occurrence. Um, what do you base that assessment of what happened on? 
Well, one thing is that I'm not aware of, of this kind of explosion ever happening, not just in Colorado, but anywhere in, in the West. Uh, I don't, I, I haven't seen a lot of uh, a lot of the data, and maybe it has happened a couple places, but it certainly hasn't. I haven't seen a leak coming out of abandoned flow line into a, in a house in Colorado uh, ever. I do want to say, though, that a state report in 2014 blamed bad pipeline for half of the equipment failures that caused oil and gas spills. I think you'd have any number of people saying there have been warning signs about wells, pipelines, flow lines for years. I think keeping equipment up to date is is a constant issue and has been a constant issue. And we've, uh, in the last four years, we've increased the penalty uh, from 500 a day to up to $5,000 a day for uh, leaks of that nature. Because obviously, if you don't have consequences like that, they don't get addressed. Uh, and I think there's been real progress in, in making sure that those uh, equipment malfunctions are being addressed. That being said, is it perfect? No. Uh, but having, it, having a flow line uh, that's been abandoned so close to uh, a housing project, at least in my, my understanding of this, is, is, is very unusual. Uh, and, and unusual, but possibly more common as more development occurs, and I mean housing development, in, in places that previously were not populated in this state. Exactly. So that's why we're going out and making sure that it, ha- it hasn't happened in any other part, any other new housing development or uh, near an oil field, uh, and making sure that within even a thousand feet, there's not a truncated line. In other words, we're we're erring on the on the side of caution here to make sure that we're covering every possibility, uh, and and we might find place. I mean, that's why we're doing this, but. In my experience, usually when you've never seen an occurrence before, uh, it doesn't mean it, it couldn't be there because otherwise we wouldn't spend uh, make all this effort to uh, uh, test and map every flow line in the state. I mean, that's a tremendous expense. But the bottom line is that since it hasn't happened before in Colorado that we've had a, a similar thing, We I don't feel that there's... Uh, a high probability or, or a likelihood that this that we're going to encounter the same or the same situation. What do you say to those who think that what happened in Firestone, that deadly home explosion, is more confirmation that local governments should have the power to regulate oil and gas operations more so than they do now? And I know that in the past you've said that's a constitutional question a state constitutional question, but there are those who, who really are clamoring for more local control. What did, what, and that, again, I mean, this is a terrible tragedy, right? The, and our, again, what happened to, uh, what these families have gone through, the, the Martins and Irwin families, is, I can't even, it's, it's unthinkable. I but to turn it into a argument for a, you know a political argument for local control, locals the local municipalities already have control of this, right? If this, if anything, this would be an argument for more state control and having a statewide uh, uh, system where, by which we you know look at flow lines uh, going over private property and make sure that there's a, a check uh, uh, you know a system by which once they're in, in place, if they're ever abandoned. Someone goes and looks at them and makes sure that they are capped. This this was an abandoned line that got cut and nobody ever cut, capped it, 
right? Now, that's you know, where those flow lines are, how close they are to houses, how close a housing development can go to the flow lines. That is, uh, you know, in local control. That's not in, in what the state control is. In many ways, it's a zoning, a local zoning issue about the proximity of new homes to operations. Well, and what the measurements are, what the, what the safeguards are, what are the, you know, uh, the insurances. I mean, I, m- my full intention is uh, to sit down with counties and municipalities uh, and members of the General Assembly and sit down and say, all right, what, what is, how can we together work on a system that guarantees every home is safe? Right? And that's uh, trying to point fingers and say, well, this is another example of, of where we need more local control. This is a place where we probably need some more state control. Again, doesn't mean we shouldn't continue looking at more local control, continue trying to find ways to, uh, you know, uh, make sure that our state is as safe as it possibly can be and it, it, as safe as it can possibly be. And that's going to require local government, state government and the industry working together. You called some of the motivations, uh, some of the reactions to this explosion political. I think that critics would say this is a question of of health and life and safety, uh, just to interject a, a different view there. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're live with Governor John Hickenlooper from the state capitol. We're both on the phone because of some technical issues. Uh, this is the last day of session and we're weighing in on uh, any number of issues under the dome and outside of it. And I'd like to move now to federal health care, Governor. The U.S. House passed a health care bill last week. You have said it would be irresponsible for the U.S. Senate to approve it as it stands. What's the biggest problem the bill would pose for Colorado in your mind? Well, there's a massive cost shifting. If, the, if that House bill which for the life of me, I, I don't see where it improves anything in the Affordable Care Act, right? It's not going to lower premiums. It's not going to add care. It's not going to uh, uh, lower costs. It's not going to help people on Medicaid. As close as I can tell, the single biggest change is it's a massive tax cut for the highest earners in America. And at least in Colorado, those high earners, when I talk to them, they say, you know, is this a problem for you? And to a person, they say, no, this is not something I'm going to fight over or uh, uh, argue for. So really what they've done is create a, a, a massive tax break for the wealthiest people in America. And it's, it's going to shift over a billion dollars, probably somewhere between one and $1.5 billion of cost to the state from the federal government. Uh, as you know, I mean, we just went through a very long budget process. Uh, we can't do that. We don't have a $1.5 billion. It's gonna, we'd, we'd have to take it out of schools or higher ed or uh, uh, prisons, whatever. We'd have to take it from a million different places. We'd have to file, uh, petition for a tax increase. It would be a, a, just a disaster, right? Are you so, working on a plan like that just in case? Well, of course, we're always looking at, at the uh, potential consequences if something like that did pass. But let me tell you, there are no uh, good outcomes. And I, I would, I'm just... Uh, dumbfounded that uh, that Congress could vote for something like this. That it it really doesn't make people healthier. Uh, it doesn't improve care. It doesn't expand coverage. Uh, indeed, it would almost certainly force or try to force states to roll back coverage of Medicaid. Uh, that's not you know th- this was supposed to be an effort or a demonstration from the Republican Party of how they were going to have 
more people covered. Everybody was going to get a good health care system. Everybody was going to be covered uh, and it was going to save money in the process, right? And at the same time, I forgot, we're going to give over a trillion dollars of tax cuts to the richest Americans uh, over the next 10 years. That just doesn't hold water. And you know, you look at how many people are saying, well, don't worry about it. That's not what's going to get passed because the Senate's going to make change. Well, but that's what the House passed. What happened to the House being the, 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 the form of the people, right, the working people of this country? Uh, I, again, you can tell I'm getting worked up, but it's very you know, specifically on. On Medicaid, uh, what you'll hear from Republicans is that there can be more efficiency in the program and that even in Colorado, uh, a program called Medicaid Prime on the Western Slope demonstrates that uh, states could do more with less. How do you respond? Oh, I totally agree. I mean, listen, I agree that that, uh, Obamacare needed to be changed and improved. I'm not arguing that. And certainly on Medicaid, if you look at Colorado, we're one of the top three or four states in the country, our per-person costs for Medicaid have been flat since 2012, right? And that's a a pretty remarkable achievement when you look at overall medical inflation. And when you take into consideration the Affordable Care uh, Collaboratives, as you point out, Medicaid Prime, we're doing a bunch of innovative things to try and lower that cost still further. Uh, I'm not saying we don't do that. Of course we're going to do that. We've got to do that anyway. But at the same time, to shift a billion two or a billion and five uh, of costs onto Colorado, uh, it it seems to me uh, irresponsible. And so all eyes are now on the U.S. Senate, and it appears that Republican U.S. Senator from Colorado, Cory Gardner, uh, will be critical in the the negotiations around health care in that chamber. Uh, Have you had conversations with him in the last few days about what you'd like to see? Not in the last few days, but we have discussed health care on several occasions. And I think Senator Gardner recognizes the importance of trying to keep uh, the people that have coverage now to make sure we don't roll back that coverage. Uh, and I think he uh, places a high, uh, a high priority on that. Uh, again, we recognize, everybody recognizes that you can't continue having costs that increase you know, without without an end in sight. That's partly why we 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 put together all these health care bills. Almost all of them got killed, you know, in the last couple of weeks. But we had a hospital transparency bill. I mean, about a third of our total Medicaid spending, right, $2.8 billion out of a total spend of $9 billion uh, goes to hospitals. And we just wanted some transparency so we could see exactly what people are getting when they spend that money. And suddenly it goes to the to the kill committee because evidently the hospital lobby thought we were just out of control and how dare we want people to know what they're actually getting for the money that's being spent. Well, you know, how are we going to control costs if we can't see what the costs are? Uh, I imagine there might have been some fear that that looked like regulation and that that meant a lot of uh, time and effort to execute. Yeah. Um, or maybe maybe some campaign contributions weren't going to come forward that had been coming in the past. I don't I don't know what the reasons were, but it's very frustrating when you're trying to control costs, uh, not to be able to get simple bill like just basic transparency. It was not filled with a bunch of paperwork. It was as lean. I mean, if if leanness was a question, we could certainly. No one wants less red tape and, and leaner systems than I do. And I'm hope, open to anything of getting that information in a, in a less troublesome way. But I don't think that was the issue. 
We have just a few minutes left, so I'd like to return to the legislative session, which is wrapping up right here. Uh, you've seen seven sessions now, um, and I wonder in this one if there is a bill we haven't talked about uh, that you think uh, des deserves this spotlight, uh, perhaps one that flew under the radar, or, um, and I know you're loath to talk about this, uh, one that is likely to get your veto pen. You can head in either direction. <laughs> well, you know, I think that this, of all the seven sessions I've been in, um, we really got a lot done. And our budget director, Henry Chauvinet, we gave him our, you know, each year we give a state award for somebody who's done the most. And he got it this year because we got the construction defects done. And again, uh, Speaker Duran really stepped up and was involved in the details of this and worked with President Grantham to, to finally get this over the finish line. Got well, let me say there that the, the promise of construction defects is that there will be more condo construction and that with uh, more availability of condos on the market, the cost of housing will go down. So I'd actually like to follow up on that and say, uh, at what point do you think we'll start to see um, more housing stock and lower prices as a result? That was the long promise of this. Well, the the goal of getting more housing starts at condominiums, uh, again, these projects take six months or a year, sometimes two or three years to put together. But I think there are a lot that are percolating out there now. So my guess would we'd see a couple pretty large projects in the hundreds of units uh, within, let's say, six months or, or within 12 months at the latest. Again, I'm not aware of any. I haven't gone out and done that research. But if it is true that the fear of lawsuits was compelling developers to avoid condominiums, I think this does a, uh, takes a big step uh, towards allowing them to get back to work and building condominiums. So, uh, and it, now, in terms of you know, seeing a significant drop in the cost of housing, uh, it, it'll help a little bit. But again, our, we are growing at a fast rate, right? And the, and the challenge when you're growing I mean, again, our unemployment is 2.6. That's the lowest of any state in America. It's the lowest in the history of the state of Colorado. Uh, when you're, when that many entrepreneurs are coming and starting businesses in your community, and and that many jobs are being filled, you're gonna have, you can't keep up with housing. And the condominium passing construction defects will help, but it is certainly not going to be at a scale that's going to suddenly see a drop in the in the cost of housing. It's going to well, slow we'll down. We'll check increase. back in with you on that, Governor. Sure. Thank you so much for being on the phone with me. <laughs> it was a pleasure, Ryan. Colorado's Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper speaking live at the state capitol this morning with my colleague Ryan Warner. So that's the view from the executive branch. On Friday, a top Democrat and a top Republican in the legislature give us their take on the session that wrapped up today. And we're back in a moment. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Now, we're going to take you to a place called The Lost Dimension for an adventure. It's actually a comedy show where you take part in the performance. We sent producer Stephanie Wolf to the Stanley Marketplace in Aurora to check it out. But before we actually travel into this Lost Dimension, Stephanie, what's the deal with this show? Well, the idea is that you, as an audience member, are an explorer. And a group of self-described scientists want you to discover the mysteries of this lost dimension. <laughs> so Linda Klein joined me on this trip. She's a member of the Denver comedy trio ACE. And they created this show. It's called Travelers of the Lost Dimension. And she describes it as adventure comedy. Well, the adventure of it is sort of on the surface of, oh, well, this is an adventure. We're going to the lost dimension. But the other adventure that is happening sort of subconsciously is the adventure to take a courageous step 
and do something that's a little out of your comfort zone in the public sphere. So were you pushed outside your comfort zone? Well, when I arrived, I got a red messenger bag with the words survival kit on it. It was a lot of stuff in there, including a balloon. This was my, quote, personal atmospheric tank. And so I had to blow it up. And I, I spent roughly the next hour walking around this very busy public market with a balloon attached to me. So we'll just say I felt pretty awkward, at least at first. Right. And the faces of many travelers that were with me kind of gave me the impression that they felt a bit pushed outside their comfort zone as well. How about I take you there, though? Okay, let's go to this lost dimension. Have you guys been to the Lost Dimension before? You look like first-timers. I have my survival kit and something called a science meter stuck to my shirt. Please check out your survival kits. One of the show's creators, Linda Klein, and I head to the trans-dimensional device. This will transport us to the Lost Dimension. So, Linda, where exactly are we going? Because it looks like we're just kind of going into the back of the Stanley Marketplace. There is a rift in the space-time continuum underneath the Stanley. So they built their trans-dimensional device in a place that would be a little bit away from traffic patterns. Yeah, we're like, we're now going through a door, and it looks like into some kind of hallway that is maybe... It's industrial access way, I think is what I would call it, which is a great place for trans-dimensional travel. Welcome to the trans-dimensional device. Come on in, we'll be departing very soon. Just squash on in. It's dark in here. We're packed in like sardines. And our guide, Taylor, just told us to put on our space-ticles. I find mine in my survival kit. And really, they look a lot like 3D glasses. Oh, wow. <laughs> this, okay. is, uh, this is a little disorienting. Our guide leads us with our survival kits and atmospheric tanks clipped to our persons upstairs. That's when I hear something unusual. It sounds like a sports announcer, and we're moving towards the noise. There have been some tension here at the gold medal park dancing Olympic event. So everybody's peering over railings, and it looks like some people have flashlights in their hands. Yeah, they're uh, actually acting as lighting crew. It appears they're lighting the surface below. And a sports announcer is introducing the next event. Sounds like uh, sounds like cart, uh, pairs cart dancing, and they're going for the gold. So it must be something pretty spectacular. So I'm seeing two dancers, man and a woman, sequ- lots of sequins. Um, and as you said, it's almost like an, feels like an Olympic event. Except that there's a shopping cart there. A very artistic shopping cart. Um, and graceful, I might add. Uh, it almost reminds me of ice skating. Linda, what is a shopping cart doing in the Lost Dimension? See, there's not a lot that can be explained in the Lost Dimension. It is a dimension that is a lot like ours, but not. Each bit is just a little bit off, and so next time they're at the grocery store, it will be really challenging for them to interact with their grocery cart in the same way now that they've had this experience. (laughs) 
the cart dancers take their final pose, and the travelers pull red roses from their survival kits. We're on the move again. Our guide has led us back downstairs. And to go deeper into the dimension, we have to do things like play a life-size video game where we throw small balls at people in deer costumes with targets on various parts of their bodies. In a way, the whole show is like a game. You have to put the pieces together yourself. And so much of it takes place in very public spaces. There is uh, several responses from the general public. The quizzical and the concerned. And then there's the ones that just get big, giant grins on their faces, understanding the playfulness that's about to happen. I mean, what do you hope people walk away from the show, whether they're actually like a paying audience member or they were just at the Stanley because they wanted to buy an ice cream? As adults, we often leave all the playing to kids. But the excitement and joy and lightheartedness that comes from given a moment to do this, we feel it can really change people's perspective. How so? They start to value those moments of spontaneity, laughter, maybe laughing at themselves, not taking themselves too seriously. So I saw competitive shopping cart dancing and played a life-size video game. But now it's time to head back to the regular dimension. How does everybody get back to the regular dimension? Well, I'm a little concerned right now because we just discovered that the transdimensional device is closed uh, for cleaning. And uh, the atmosphere is already deteriorating, so I'm not sure what Taylor's going to have us do. Oh, we're going to activate our tanks slash balloons. Well, that bought us some time. Sorry, folks. I'm leaving you with a bit of a cliffhanger here. I'm Stephanie Wolf, reporting from The Lost Dimension, CPR News. Those are just a few of the scenes from Travelers of the Lost Dimension. The adventure comedy show takes place at the Stanley Marketplace in Aurora through May 21st. Now, let's zoom out on this concept of immersive theater because it's really not a new concept. It's been going on in cities like New York and London for decades. New York Times chief theater critic Ben Brantley joined Ryan Warner last year to speak about it. Ben, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I understand one of the first experiences you had with immersive theater was in New York's Meatpacking District. This was in the early 90s. You say you have... It was indeed when, yeah, when the Meatpacking District was a bit shadier and more open and generally more fun, I'd say. (laughs) You say you have vivid memories of that time. Will you describe that show for me, what it was? It was a a play, if that's the word for it, called Father's a Peculiar Man. I actually think it had a a proper script. It was produced by a company called En Garde Arts that uh, specializes in what they called environmental theater. And basically you were... Oh, gosh, all sorts of things happened, sort of cued from the novel, but then translated into American terms. I remember at one point the Kennedys arriving in a convertible that is Jackie and Jack, as on that day in Dallas, there was a long groaning board of a uh, banquet table that took up more than, than half the block. And I think we ended in a torture chamber where we watched individuals being whipped. And I think this was all supposed to be about the decline of family values in American civilization. 
But um, it was it was quite vivid, and it was also fun to see an area that you knew, a part of a city you knew, so transformed. I mean, we say all the world's a stage, and it's kind of great when it's put to practical use like that. Right, when it becomes literal. You know, talking about the torture chamber, it makes me think of hell houses, which are those. Oh kind yes, of-, of course, yeah. No, and they've been, but they've been going on for what twenty years now. Uh, there was a uh, a company here, an experimental company here called Frère Corbusier that recreated a hell house without irony, without winking. Uh, they actually bought the hell hell house kit that you can can order online and created the experience of going through an environment in which you see the chambers of hell reserved for people who may have abortions or be homosexual or uh, unpatriotic or whatever. Each It's sort of a Dante-esque version, but as seen from the American far right's perspective. That's right. These hell houses, uh, many of which actually are in Colorado, are often run by churches. Uh, You say for an interactive show to be most effective, it needs to do more than just break the fourth wall between performers and the audience. It needs to create an environment or a world you can, quote, fall into. What do you mean? Well, I I think that's true. Uh, Third Rail have a long-running show in Brooklyn here called Then She Fell. Right. Which is about is it recreates Lewis Carroll's world and that of Alice in Wonderland and that of course begins with Alice tumbling down a rabbit hole into uh, uh, an alternative universe and I think we're fascinated always have been by the ideas of alternative universes I mean for me going to the county fair when I was a kid in North Carolina sort of provided the same sensation but you want a world that turns your world upside down to some extent that has its own own rules own environment And um, I think you go to theater to be taken out of yourself to begin with. When you go to immersive theater, it becomes a physical process as well. I couldn't help but think of the comedian Gallagher, who is famous for his sledgematic act. He would (laughs) smash watermelons and a variety of other produce that would rain on the audience. We're going to start with the watermelon. Ah! Then we're going to go to the pineapple, which isn't as good. It's too too hard. It's too hard. You see this? Is there anything that's gimmicky about this or risks being gimmicky? Sure. I mean, it's a stunt to begin with, but I think, you know, theater in itself starts off as a stunt. Um, It's... What's I think why it's so particularly appealing to people at this point is we we sort of at you know and the apogee of of self centeredness in our culture everyone likes to think he or she is the star of his own show and can control <laughs> the script to some extent and um, a lot of these uh, pieces let you do that even though you're not really in control they give you the illusion that this is this is all about you it's. Um, it's more than any other form of theater. It panders to the audience's individual sense of uniqueness, I think. And is that good for theater? Why not? I mean, anything that, that transforms the world, I think, through art is, is, is pretty exciting. For me, the, uh, I mean, there, I've been in very sort of self-contained uh, special environments like Punch Drunk, the London Company, has a long-running uh, variation on Macbeth in which you walk through the haunted chambers of a hotel. Mm. But what I especially love is when you, like as on, as on Guard Arts did with the Dostoevsky thing, when they take 
when you when you're sent through the streets of a place you think you know, and this this I've done in London as well as New York. And you're asked to look at it as if you were observing a play. Uh, there was something in London where I went through Camden with a headset. And I was told, you know, look over here. Someone will be meeting you. And everyone you look at becomes a, a potential actor. So um, the, it turns theater as metaphor into theater as, as, as reality, as street reality. And uh, that, I think, is, is tremendously enriching. You have to be game to do this, don't you? You do. I went to one uh, show in London called You, Me, Bum Bum Train, in which you really are the star of, of, of the show. You go in individually and you're thrust into different environments, like suddenly you'll find yourself being a politician fending off questions about your investment in BP oil, uh, or you'll be at the bottom of a garbage heap, or you'll be a singer in a bar. And you have to assume each of those roles as it goes along. Fortunately, in this case, it's only the actors, uh, that is, who become the audience in this case, who are looking at you. But uh, yes, you just hope there's uh, no one's uh, posting something on YouTube afterwards. Um, Are lots of playwrights writing in this genre now? Well, I think a lot of companies are working in this genre. Uh, it's not so much a, a play, per se, uh, in many cases, as, as creating an environment. And uh, it's... It's the equivalent of, of, of fun houses for, uh, for adults, just a bit more sophisticated with a certain cultural gloss. And at their best, they can truly take you out of yourself and take you out of a familiar world or turn a familiar world into something exotic. Ben Brantley is the chief theater critic with The New York Times. He spoke with Ryan Warner about immersive theater last year. And that's our show. Thanks to John Zuko, Rachel Estabrook, Andrew Dukakis, Stephanie Wolf, and Michelle P. Fulcher. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner, and I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.